Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, and this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Okay, so this is the third in our series this month on human trafficking. Ooh, this has been a long journey for me. Back in July, when the movie Sound of Freedom came out, there was so much buzz about the issue of trafficking. I started pounding the phone, reaching out to people, making posts on social media. Who could I talk to? I did about 10 first-person interviews with people that were all involved in anti-trafficking efforts all over the world um, in all different kinds of ways, law enforcement and um, restoration and just all kinds of efforts. But I, I talked exclusively to people who were very strong Christians and were motivated by their faith in why they did this work. But one of the things I learned through that whole long process is that there are a lot of small-ish, mom-and-pop kind of size ministries of a few people, faceless, nameless people, not, not famous people, not raising tens of millions of dollars, but just regular people putting themselves on the line for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, and one of those people that I interacted with during that season is our guest today. Super excited to have you guys meet her. She's a wealth of important information and perspective on this on this topic. And her story is a little unusual of how she got into this. So with that, let's bring on our friend Carrie Grace from Freedom Shield Foundation to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be with you, ladies. Hello. Thank you so much for being with us and for taking some time out of your day to have a conversation with us and to help inform our viewers on your work specifically and just the work that that you're in overall. Can you tell us, I know Chris has already said, you know, that you have a big story, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you went from being a homeschool, like a stay-at-home mom, to now working in the realm of human trafficking or anti-human trafficking. Yeah, I. this is really kind of cool because I feel like my story allows every person who thinks to themselves, well, there's nothing I could do or... How do you even get involved in, you know, fighting human trafficking? It's such a big issue. And for me, I was a stay-at-home homeschooling mom back in 2004. And one day my doorbell rang. I go to the door and there were three women standing there. And they just said to me, we were told if we came here, you would be nice to us. And I'm trying to figure out, like, who sent you to my house and <laughs> what are you trying to sell, you know? And um, anyhow, they had gone to a church to try to get some financial help. There was a big billboard that said, you know, do you need financial help? And they were like, yeah, we do. So they go in not knowing it was, you know, let's sign up for a Dave Ramsey stewardship class. Um, so they go in and they're trying to figure out, uh, talking to this nice lady at the church, how do you get the money that they had on the billboard? And of course, the lady at the church is asking them a lot of questions. You know, do you know the Lord? Do you have a relationship with him? And, you know, they're trying to decide, do we answer the questions in such a way that we can ensure that we get the money or do we answer honestly? <laughs> so finally, the lady asked them, you know, why don't y'all come to church on Sunday? We'd love to have you join us. And the three women said, oh, we can't come to your church. And she said, well, of course you can. Anyone can come. And they said, no, we're strippers at the club here in Fort Worth. And if we come to your church, we'll see our customers and they'll be with their families and they'll know that we don't belong. Oh. So um, that, that's deep. Yes. And that's when the, uh, the lady said, well, go find this lady, Carrie, and she will be nice to you. So these women showed up at my door with nothing other than a promise of there's this woman that's going to be nice to you. And I just 
think that it's so important for us to remember sometimes when we look at an issue that is so dark and so overwhelming that we don't have to have, you know, all the degrees. We don't have to have all this training. Sometimes it's as simple as how we treat people that allows us the opportunity to potentially know what their story is and how we can help them. So these women, um, I invited them in and began just this informal support group. I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought, you know, they came to me, so I'm going to steward what the Lord has dropped in my front door. So and, you didn't have a ministry at this point. You didn't you you didn't know everything about wow. human trafficking or strippers or how to minister to them. I didn't even know about the term human trafficking in 2004. I didn't. And so I was way behind, I'm sure, of <laughs> the curve. I was trying to live in a little safe bubble, clearly, um, and that got burst. And, you know, they they really did want to know about God. And so they came on a weekly basis every Tuesday night, and they would have questions um, that they wanted to see if we could answer. They bring a legal pad, you know, with all their questions, and we would just go through them. And two of them ended up getting out of the industry, but one had a daughter who was disabled. So she couldn't put her in regular daycare and have a normal job. So she had a live-in boyfriend that would stay, and several nights a week she would dance at the club in Fort Worth. And she would literally come to my house before her shift and just be crying. And I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to take off my clothes. I don't want to sit on anybody's lap. I don't want to drink until I pass out. She would throw up in my bathroom because she did not want to have to go do that again. And I didn't know at the time how to help her. I didn't know what resources to try to offer. And it wasn't until, you know, 2010, 2011, when we, I partnered with another woman who um, had come out of the industry and the Lord had transformed her life. And so she felt called to go back into the strip clubs. And I was over here like, well, I've kind of got like a support group for strippers going in my house. And we um, ended up, you know, just pulling together church ladies. And together we started going into the strip clubs all in DFW. We would take gifts to the women and meet with them right where they were and invite them to come to a support group. And that's really how the whole ministry that I originally was with, that's how it started. Um, so I just think it's important that people know that, you know, first of all, if God's calling you to something, he can make it real clear to you um, <laughs> by sending people to your front door. But at the same time, there wasn't something special about me. You know, um, it was just a promise that I would be, I would be nice to them. And so I just don't want people to discount themselves being called to this battlefield because they feel like maybe they don't have enough qualifications or experience. I think it's interesting that you started out working with strippers because I don't know how many people would actually consider stripping a form of human trafficking, but it definitely is a form of human trafficking. And people also don't realize that there are some strippers, I'm not saying it's across the board, but some strippers are placed in the club by someone who is in the more traditional route of human trafficking when we think of things like prostitution or things like that. What, like, what did you do originally? So like, how, how did you start with them and, and what were some of the first steps that you took? And what were maybe some of the mistakes that you made? Yeah. I have a long list of all of the above. <laughs> um, so I, I think what you're saying, Monique, is so important for people to understand because we've been sold a story that is very much a Hollywood version of uh, strippers, which goes sort of like this. You know, she's probably making great money. She's putting herself through college, um, women's empowerment, like all of the things that we hear about women in the strip clubs. And that is absolutely not the reality. If that is real, I have not met that group of women. And I've served hundreds of strippers at this point. And many of them are forced to diversify by going into the strip clubs. They're getting more clients. It's an easier uh, pool of men to... Um, be able to solicit in order to provide other services. Um, we definitely would see women coming out the front doors, women who were dancers coming out their front doors with clients because they were having to go in and provide other services. So 
Prostitution is absolutely happening. I could walk into a strip club and show you where the pimps and the traffickers are sitting watching their girls while they're dancing. So there's a large percentage of women in the strip clubs that are absolutely being trafficked. Um, so that is the story that we've been told is a lie. Um, they are absolutely not putting themselves through college. So you are not helping their college fund by going to the strip club. So I would say when when we started out, we were kind of um, learning as we went and realizing what were the needs that the this specific population of women had. And it was simple, like when you realize how you can support someone, um, you're looking at their financial needs. So we provided financial coaching for them. We had a mentor who was a woman of you know God, but she wasn't going to push God on them. She was just showing them what it looked like to live in a relationship with the Lord that would come alongside them. We had developed a weekly support group. So they had other women that were just like them, that they were able to build relationships with and support and encourage each other. And they were able to be, you know, one woman may have been out for six months and another is just coming in, but she's like, okay, she's making it, you know, this is possible. So they were kind of creating hope amongst themselves, which was really beautiful to see. Um, But we just kind of saw, you know, they needed counseling because all of them, the stat is that 96% of women that end up in the sex industry were sexually abused as children. 96%. I haven't met the 4% that that was not their story, but apparently 4% weren't. Um, that's just not the women I've met yet. And so all of them had childhood trauma that was kind of predisposing them to this vulnerability. Um, and so, you know, we, we provided counseling for them and pathways to be hired in legitimate businesses that were trauma informed, that understood the program that we were, you know, helping them. And so they were wonderful employers for the women. So we had to really think of every aspect of their life and what they would need to be able to truly start over. Because when your resume says Rick's Cabaret, that's a little bit of a hindrance. Um, you know, education was, was, there were gaps in, you know, if their resume for education, there were gaps for um, employment. Um, so there were just a lot of hurdles to overcome. So we just saw that really you have to build um programs and resources around every area of vulnerability. Otherwise, that the enemy is so sneaky, he will come after the one area of vulnerability that we didn't cover and he'll hit them there. Um, and so that's really what we saw. And, and we had a, a wonderful program, great success rate. Um, 85% of the women that came to our support group left the industry, which was incredible. So we got to see a lot of transformations happen in the time that I was there. And um, I then transitioned into working exclusively with uh, survivors of human trafficking, um, and that started in 2019. And, and I, when you say human trafficking, you're referring specifically to to prostitution. Um, or, well, I mean, or, there's online um, pornography, there's prostitution, um, you know, there's... <laughs> there's a lot of things that are happening to people in that realm, Um for sure. There's the massage parlors, what's happening. Um, So the forms that it takes here in the United States are typically um, going to manifest in the ways of online pornography, um, the strip clubs, prostitution, and massage parlors. Okay. Um, And I would tell you that the massage parlors are the fastest growing form of human trafficking um, that we're seeing in the United States. Wow. Um. Lots of illicit massage businesses have been popping up. Um, so when you look at the, for me, it was just kind of a learning process of realizing the stories were just so consistently lining up with so many of these women had been trafficked. They didn't even know that that's what was happening. They thought that was their boyfriend. And I just have to do this for a little while until we, you know, get on our feet or he's going to be, you know, a rap star. And so I'm just having to do this right now. And then we're all going to be rich. There's so many stories of, you know, you're going to be a model and they would take them and have legitimate photo shoots and then it would turn on them. And so um, there were so many ways that women were being exploited. 
I would say as far as the things that I uh, learned <laughs> the hard way, um, one thing that I think is really important when you're working with anyone who has been through severe trauma, they get to still make their own choices. But that's really difficult because there have been so many times where we have done risky operations to get someone out of a trafficking situation. We've used a lot of resources, you know, to be able to provide them an exit and a safe place, um, advocacy, medical, all the things. And then they may choose to go back. And we have to honor people's free will. And that I would say for anyone getting into this work is that's hard. And there's a grieving that goes along with that. Um, but we cannot try to control. We can't be the same way that the trafficker was. We have to represent the Lord who always gives us free will. So I would say that would be one thing that's a hard lesson um, for anyone working in this space is that you have to let people make their own choices. And the beautiful thing is that we have this opportunity to plant seeds and they're going to have the encounter with the love of Jesus that maybe they've never had in their lives while they're with us. And that will leave an impression. And so I just believe that um, they'll come back. You know, they'll come back to us or they'll find another organization um, and they will eventually leave. I just believe that with all my heart. But that would be a challenge. And I would say the second challenge is, um, and I I learned this working, um, I, I worked in Iraq um, after ISIS invaded. So I was there from 2016 to 2018. Um, I made a lot of trips back and forth. And they were just the most traumatized individuals I've ever served. Um, the things that they had endured were so horrific. I just don't even tell the stories. And it was hard because those stories would get stuck in me. And mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that would be the second hard lesson is that we cannot carry them. You know, we have to hand them over to the Lord. And he showed me something I think is really powerful. Um, he was showing me what it really looks like to be an intercessor because I was asking him, what does that really mean? You know, the weight of that. And he showed me the story where um, they, Jesus was carrying the cross up to um, the hill and, you know, they end up calling this guy out of the crowd to come and, and help him. And that man, he came under the cross and he felt the weight of it. But when he got to the top of that hill, it, it would have done us no good for him to have died on that cross. We, he had to hand it back over to Jesus. And I think for people in this work, um, we have to know at the end of the day, we have to hand this back over to the Lord. We cannot carry them. And so that's something that I just, you know, I think are hard lessons that I've had to learn is that he's the savior. I'm not, I <laughs> can't say anyone, you know, all I can do is love them and, and steward well the resources that I have to offer to them and, and let him do his work. So much has been said in that and, and brings up so many questions. Um, I going all the way back to the stripping conversation. I love the fact that you brought up that these women are not, you know, doing it for their college education and, you know, because they're just trying to get out of debt. You know, it's not, it's not like that. And um, yeah, that it just, called to remembrance a friend that I have who actually was stripping and the the college you know idea was never in the picture and in all of this you know I'm just helping someone out and the fact that they have to do really horrible things just to be able to get through the door yes. and so it's not like you know they're just walking it all willy-nilly like just can't wait to get to work it it's the I have to be drunk to show up I need to be high to get there. I don't think that people talk about that or understand that part of it. And then um, talking about the autonomy and understanding that each person has their own personal autonomy. And as much as I want this freedom for you, I can't make you choose freedom. 
do you or does your program, we definitely want to talk about, you know, how people come into your program and what your program provides. But before you answer that question, which is my next question to you, is there within your program embedded an assessment where you might say, you know what, I I know you really want it, but you're not ready. Or is it, you know, whoever wills may come. And, you know, if you come 27 times, we are going to receive you those 27 times until you get to the point of saying, this is the time when I'm actually going to walk it all the way out. Yeah. So we do have, um, we use kind of the readiness for change assessment, which is um, most people are familiar with that if you're working in a helping industry at all. Um, And that really allows us not to choose whether or not we're taking them in, but it allows us to set our expectations appropriately. Um, So if she is, you know, for instance, if she comes to us because there was a sting operation done by Homeland Security and the options are you can go to jail or you can go into a program. (laughs) Sometimes they may choose to go into a program rather than go to jail. And that to me is going to be, she is on the the lowest level of readiness for change because it wasn't in her mind to change. She was just forced into some options at that point. And um, so that versus someone who reached out herself to, you know, a national human trafficking hotline and says, I need to get out. She's at a different place in the readiness for change. So our services are not going to be yes or no based on their readiness for change, but we are probably going to expect that she may, you know, leave within the first 48 hours Mm -hmm. if she wasn't really ready for that. And that's okay. That's not a problem for us, you know, but we are not expecting and nor are we going to try to use force, fraud or coercion, which is what they used to traffic to begin with. We're not going to use that on her to try to get her to stay. Um, We do let them know when they come into our program that we will not uh, be returning you to a trafficker. If you choose to exit our program, we will we will take you to a safe place where you where you go from there is your choice. But we cannot, you know, transport you back to a trafficker. Um, And we just tell them, you know, for our own security, it's just not wisdom for us to go and expose ourselves and our team, you know, to an unsafe environment. Um, And they understand that. But our, you know. Our goal is to give them to another safe place that maybe they'll spend a little bit of time there and and have more to think, you know. So how do people come to your program or come out of trafficking situations specifically, you know, and get to you? And what do you guys provide once they're with you? So we have um, we do have partnership with um, National Human Trafficking Hotline. We work closely with Rescue America, which is a wonderful faith based organization, um, and they they run a national hotline that is phenomenal. Um, so we work with them as well as with law enforcement. So if it's um, Homeland Security or local law enforcement, we work with them pretty closely. They know that we have emergency housing, and so. You know, if they come across a victim, then they're going to reach out to us and see if we have availability. We also work with other nonprofits that are serving um, survivors. So there may be drop-in centers um, or it may be that there's a long-term restoration program that they don't have a bed available yet, but they are willing to take um, a victim in and they'll ask us, will you house her first? Um, before, you know, she comes into our program. So that's how we get most of our calls. Um, sometimes they'll find our website and call us directly uh, or contact us directly, but that is pretty rare. It usually comes through a referring um, agency. So once we are able to connect with a survivor, um, we have an advocate that will talk to her directly. And that advocate is able to give her the opportunity to Um, ask any questions that she may want to know about this place that she's going to. Um, And so we're able to just answer any questions that she has and let her know a little bit of what to expect. Um, And then when they come into our program, we provide medical care, we provide legal assistance, um, we help with placement of their children if they need that um, provided so that they can go into a long-term program. Um, We also are focused primarily on rest and stabilization. 
we serve them for the first 30 days. So we're kind of like the ICU of aftercare. And it's not the time to try to, you know, come up with their life goals and what was their dream and vision, you know, for their life. It is like we're assessing the trauma. Um, We're doing PTSD screeners to determine how their daily life is being impacted by the trauma that they have experienced. So are they having nightmares, um, panic attacks, you know, intrusive thoughts? We're, We're trying to determine what are they experiencing on an ongoing basis that is most crippling for them? And then we have a curriculum that is um, all coping skills, stabilization techniques that we're then teaching them so that they feel empowered to know what to do if they are facing, you know, a panic attack or a nightmare. And so we really try to make the most of the time that we have them giving them the best skills and tools that we can. And um, our goal is to set them up for more success in long-term care. So if you look at the national landscape right now, there's an 85% failure rate in long-term residential care, which is not okay. Um, So 85% of women leave in the first two weeks. So when I saw that, I knew... I wanted to create a program that could provide the stabilization piece before they have to make that long-term commitment and hopefully set them up better to be able to do that. Um, so we, since we opened the doors in 2020, so three years last month um, was our, our three-year anniversary, uh, we've served 53 women and 80% of them have been able to successfully complete our program as well as successfully either they're still in a long-term program or they've completed a long-term program. Wow. So that's amazing. And that's what we were hoping would, you know, we could start seeing that change um, because there's a lot that goes into a long-term care. I mean, they're they're spending a lot of money. They have a lot of people involved and we want them to be successful um, at what they're trying to do because it's hard work. So, uh, but those are the services that we provide. And every woman that comes in, she doesn't, I mean, none of them have clothing or basic essentials, uh, anything like that. So we provide everything. Um, and it's so beautiful. I love my team so much because we, as soon as we get the call and we're like, okay, it's a green light, we have our security team, which they're all former FBI, CIA, military, special forces guys. They're amazing at what they do. They do a lot of the work internationally, but here locally, they do support the safe house with security and transport. And so they're coming up with the transport, you know, security planning. And then we have the shoppers who are getting the groceries and the clothing and her size. So the advocate on the phone with her is like, okay, what's your favorite color? And what size clothes do you wear? What's your favorite snack and drink? So by the time she arrives at our safe house, there's a welcome basket full of her favorite things, clothing in her size and favorite colors, just waiting for her. Um, so we try to, you know, meet every need we possibly can so that she can come in and feel like I can just take a deep breath. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm safe. Wow. And what a what an awesome way to love on someone and to honor them when you're bringing them from a place where their autonomy is like not like they the human autonomy when you're in the trafficking industry and being trafficked there's there's no such thing you go when you're told to go you are the property of someone else there is no what's your favorite snack or you know what's your favorite color you belong to someone else and so what a way of just immediately coming in and reversing some of that yeah, it's really beautiful and it and it they just always walk in and they're just kind of like in shock, you know, like how how did they do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, like a magic trick, I'm sure, but um but uh, in our when they first enter, we give them the first 48 to 72 hours to just rest. There's no scheduling. It is, you know, their days and nights are flipped, so we're just letting them try to kind of get that back to normal. Um and you know, we're just not we're not in a hurry to start a program, what they need. And and that's where, um, when I wrote this program, God told me to call it rest. And it's based off of Psalm 23. And, and that's really what we want them to experience. And in the presence of God, 
that's where there's safety. That's where there's a, a, a true ability to even rest because he's the good shepherd that provides for us. He takes care of all of our needs and they get to experience that, you know, when they enter into our program. That's really wonderful. And I love how our worldview as Christians is intersecting with the real world and showing these victims there's another way. God has a different plan. And um, there is a different way of thinking and living and being, and that there is the possibility of real love, actual yeah. love from the creator of the universe. And so I, I love all of that. All right, we're going to take a quick break, Carrie. We've got to um, hear from our friends at Impact 360, and we're going to play their video, and then we'll be right back to hear some more from Carrie Grace. We're going to talk about how trafficking comes into probably your home, your church, and some of the ways that you might not be thinking. You, you might be thinking right now, this is an over there problem. Well, we're going to start talking about it. It might actually be a little closer to you than, than you might realize. We'll see you in about a minute. It's time to prepare. Let's get ready for the journey ahead. Life doesn't give us a redo. We don't get to run it back. Along the way, we will face obstacles and challenges, but we are carrying light into the dark places. Our paths and our destinations are different, but our beginning is the same. We must prepare. This is why Impact 360 Institute exists. Get ready to grow, to stand firm, to be who God created you to be, to lead with courage, truth, and love. This experience will transform your life. Be challenged to grow your faith. Learn how to think, not what to think. Build community with those seeking to live like Jesus. Establish spiritual rhythms, discover how to be, and make disciples. And put your faith into action. As you prepare for the journey ahead, deepen your understanding of what God has revealed about reality and why Christianity is true. Discover your identity in Christ and your God-given calling and authentic community. Cultivate a servant's heart and live a life of spirit-empowered kingdom influence. Once again, I want to encourage all of you, especially your Christian parents, to go check out our friends at Impact 360 and the important work that they are doing with worldview training for our young people and see if that might be a good fit to help your family in your efforts to disciple the students in your life. Okay, uh, Carrie, I, I think that at this point, we need to start having a conversation of how trafficking hits us a little closer to home sometimes. You made a statement earlier that those three uh, strippers who showed up on your doorstep didn't want to come to church because their concern was we will see our customers at church. That's an alarming yeah. statement that speaks to a couple of things. One is the demand uh, for these quote unquote, I don't want to call them services, but this these kinds of acts. Um, so Let's talk about customers. Who are the customers? I think in our minds, we're thinking these are dirty people who are over there and far away from us. I'm not sure that that's the case, though, based on your earlier statement. Right. Well, and this is the part where um, it, it does start getting really um, overwhelming and discouraging if we did not know the power of God to come and transform um, hearts that are willing but uh, right now in the global landscape, the United States is the number one consumer of sexually oriented content. So we are driving the demand as a nation. In 2018, if you look at the trafficking in persons report that's put out by the State Department, they put it out every year. And in 2018 was the first time the United States was at the top of the list for human trafficking. The United States, the Philippines, and Mexico. So, yes, it's happening in other places, but it is primarily an issue right here. And when we look at 
who is the demographic? Who are the purchasers? Who are these men? There is truly no age, race, socioeconomic descriptor. There is nothing that identifies a um, a certain group of men that are more likely to purchase than anyone else. So truly, the customers are anyone. <laughs> it's any any male, um, and you know there are females that are participating in this, but typically it's because they're doing something alongside a male partner. Uh, there are those women that maybe are, um, you know, having curiosity about same-sex attraction that might go to purchase to see if that's something that they are interested in. But I mean, you're still looking at over 90% are men that are purchasing. So then you have to look at the average age of a trafficking victim in the United States. So the average age is 13. And we know how we get an average. So that is a very low age. That's alarming. It is alarming. Heartbreaking. My God. That the average is 13. That means that there's a lot of purchases that are happening of on the younger and enough to counterweight what what's, what's older what's older so that we arrive in the middle at 13 13 that's very alarming yes so the other number and i use um conservative numbers because i don't think we need to sensationalize it it's already horrific enough so conservative numbers are 300,000 minors are lured into sex trafficking every year in the united states so, again, when you look at then the average number of clients that they are forced to serve per day, which I want to be honest and use the accurate language, the number of people willing to pay to rape a child, that's the reality of it. Yep. So they have to be raped usually on average 10 times a day. It's anywhere from 5 to 40, but we're we're averaging about 10 is what we'll say. So when you look at that, that means one victim has been raped 2,600 times in one year because they work at least five days a week and they work 52 weeks out of the year. You multiply that times the 300,000 and you're looking at millions, hundreds of millions of men in America that are paying to rape children. That is the biggest problem that we have. And that's demonic. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, that's just demonic. I'm sorry to interrupt it, you. It's and and men have forgotten their their identity and that they were created in the image of God. And what they carry is to be protectors and defenders. That's who men are created to be. And when they leave that and become the exploiters and the abusers, it's truly the exact opposite of what they were created and intended to be in the, in the earth. And so when men choose to rise back up in their God-given identity of provider, protector, defender, it's game over. Uh -huh. They become the solution instead of the problem. And that is truly what I want to see. But it starts so young because now the average age of exposure to pornography is seven. So you take a seven-year-old child whose brain has not even developed and you implant it with pornography. That is what I believe is the root cause of everything that I deal with downstream when it comes to trafficking victims because of pornography. And this is where the enemy is so strategic, because what he tells men is that you can look at pornography and you're not hurting anyone. As long as, you know, your spouse or your girlfriend, as long as nobody finds out, nobody's going to get hurt. The reality is this. I have worked with, I don't even know how many victims. I mean, we're, I don't even know. It's over. We're in the thousands at this point. Okay. I've been doing this for 12 years. And 
I have sat with so many women who can share their stories of being trafficked, of being raped over and over, and they don't have emotion attached to it. They're so numbed to what has happened to them many times. But the two things that make women break down and cry in my office are the pornography that they were forced to be in and the abortions that they were forced to have. The reason is that you cannot get those back. There is a part of a woman when she is forced to do pornography, she can never get that back. She doesn't own it. Somebody else owns it. And for the rest of her life, that can be discovered. Her children could see it. Her future spouse or in-laws or employers can see that, can find it. So she has given up something that is so valuable that she can never get back. And it was the most horrific torture that she experienced in her trafficking experience was having to create the pornography. So the enemy is telling men, you're not hurting anyone. And for the women, it was truly the most traumatic experience that they had. That's the reality. And so we don't want to we don't want to draw the conclusion that if you look at pornography that you may end up purchasing someone, but that is the truth. I um, part of my story is that I had to put my own father in prison in 2015, and my father was worked for the same company his whole life. He's former Marine. He was the first person to church and the last person to leave. And yet this addiction led him down a dark path to do things that he never thought he would do to children. So I know firsthand that the enemy is not just trying to get the men of the world. He's looking to to trap the men of God with this issue. Because if he can tear down the family, then he has access to everyone. And that's what we're seeing. In other countries around the world, the number one vulnerability that leads people to being trafficked is poverty. In the United States, it's the breakdown of the family. And now the number one cause of divorce is pornography in the United States. So that to me is what we need to be looking at, is that I can can spend the rest of my life trying to do restoration for women who have experienced these horrific things that they've gone through. Or we can reach the hearts of men who are creating the demand because that is the biggest group here. It's not, we have, they far outnumber the the victims and the traffickers. So that's where I believe as a nation, we have a lot of work to do. We have got to raise the standard again for what men represent. We've got to quit emasculating men, all of the society and union. And give them their rightful place and honor them. And they may, that may help to remind them of who they are in the world. But if we don't have godly men rising up, we will never solve this. They have to because they have to be the solution to this. And I feel like I sit in such a unique place because on a daily basis, I see the worst of what mankind can do. But I also see the best because I work with an incredible team of men who are willing to risk their lives to save these victims. And so I see both. And I have hope because I know what God created men to be because I work with them on a daily basis. So I know it's discouraging, but it's also very encouraging to see what is possible. That's really good. And and I think that we have to be sober-minded as Christians, the porn is an issue even among our Christian leaders, our pastors. Um, you know, I don't have those statistics at the ready, but people can Google them. There's recent studies, you know, that as the ages get younger for pastors, their porn usage goes up mm-hmm. exponentially. And there's about the last numbers I saw that about 15% of youth pastors are accessing porn multiple times a month. Um, And 
when you go up the scale to pastors that are in higher authority, you know, about, I think the last time I looked is about 60% of pastors overall are accessing porn multiple times a month. That's a lot. So we cannot think that this is purely an, an out there problem mm -hmm. as Christians. This is an in our homes problem, in our churches problem, that we might think human trafficking is something that is out there, but it is, we are bringing it into, into our homes. So we can't divorce porn from human trafficking. Yes. Yeah. Like, like that's not a thing. And so we we're going to talk about justice. Yeah. We got to have a real conversation about. That. Yeah. So it, it can't be, well, you know, at least he's not sleeping with a prostitute. No. Porn and trafficking. Yes. Here, here we go. Like we're, we're talking about the exact same thing. And just because it shows up this way and not that way does not mean that it's not the same thing. And I think that's a reality that many people really need to check in their heart and check with your leadership team, your husband, your son. Is human trafficking occurring in your home? And I know that that comment right there is going to piss a lot of people off. But let's just be real. Like, if, if we don't call a spade a spade, let's just call it out. Like, if somebody in your home is watching porn, you need to acknowledge that human trafficking is occurring in your home. Absolutely. My um, husband is the founder of Freedom Show Foundation, and he's a former FBI special agent and now uses his skill set to find and recover, you know, victims of human trafficking all around the world. And when he speaks to men, I love it because he tells them every time you click on an image, you are creating the demand for your own daughters. Mm. And we need to take that seriously because we are continually increasing the demand every time we choose to look at something you just you just increased it and this was encouraging to me there's a an organization called the net um in fort worth and ty bowden runs a part of that um organization targeting men online who are you know looking for porn and and they're sex addicted and as he has been talking with hundreds of men because they basically set up decoy ads. And then when the men call, it's him and his team trying to encourage them to stop looking at porn, right? And not to, you know, purchase. And from his research of all the men he's talked to on that, on that, um, well, in those missions, 68% of men said that they wanted to stop. That's encouraging to me because if we can then start providing true help and support for men, not the old accountability model of, hey, let's just go sit at Starbucks and talk about how we all looked at porn again last week. And then, you know, hey, let's try to not look at it this next week. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like truly um, let's get back to honoring the Lord and fearing the Lord. Yeah. Uh, and that that encourages me because men want out. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's, you know, like my last comment is not meant, even though my last comment was strong, is not meant to be a conversation of shame or to be a conversation of now, you know, this is happening in my home. Let me go and hide. No, this is a conversation where you find help, where we as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we, one, hold each other accountable, and two, we disciple each other. We walk alongside each other because this is a sin, and we also believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that there is hope in Jesus. We believe that transformation is possible, that God doesn't just leave us, like, to, to die in our sin. Yeah. So you've already kind of touched on in your story, you were just a regular person and all of a sudden you found yourself kind of thrust into a ministry. God certainly had his way with you. But uh, what advice might you have for regular people? It can feel very disempowering and discouraging to be a regular person listening to these kinds of conversations. How might they also support or help to push back on this darkness yeah. 
this demonic plan to capture our men and women. What are what thoughts might you share about that? I think it's um it's natural for us to think of okay, well what organizations in my area are doing something and I'll get involved. And that's wonderful. I encourage that because they probably need support. Um but I would start with your own family and have the conversations that you need to have with your siblings, with your kids, with your grandkids, with your, you know, your spouses, have the real conversations and be a safe place so that if someone does say, yeah, this is an issue for me, I have been, um, you know, vulnerable online because I've been talking to people I don't know, or I have been looking at porn. We have to start with that that open door of you're going to be loved and accepted, but we can't keep things in the dark. So start with your own family. And I encourage you to have conversations and then really set up um, processes in your own family to help empower those that may be struggling. So for instance, when my son was a teenager, um, he was struggling with this. And I found out, which was extremely shameful for him because he's like, I have this mom who's working to help, you know, victims. And then I'm over here looking at this stuff. And so the Lord exposed it. I'm so grateful, but we came up with a plan and I asked him, when are you most vulnerable? When do you are, when are you tempted to look at this stuff? And he shared with me at night and when you're at work and I'm alone. So I gave him a job with me. He started coming to work with me. He wasn't alone anymore. And then at night, we started our own little routine of even though he was 15 years old, I was a single mom. We were reading the Bible together. We were worshiping together. I was praying over him before bed. And all of his devices stayed in my room with me and everything. And that was, we had to have a battle plan. And I just think, you know, it's not enough to say I'm struggling or I have done these things. It is, okay, how are we going to set up the guardrails to help you be more successful? So I just think you're not, you don't have to try too hard uh, to make something happen. Start with your own family. And then I think it's so important that we light the churches on fire about this issue. So whatever church you're involved in, We have got to have the church stand up because the world is not going to be able to solve this problem. They're benefiting from it. And so they're profiting off of it. The church has all of the things that are needed. The church holds the deck of cards that includes restoration and redemption and forgiveness and hope and love and all the things that are needed for anyone who's been impacted by this issue. So if the church does not get involved, we will not win this battle. And so if you're plugged into a church, just start having the conversations in your own church and start the fire. And then there are going to be organizations that will um, help you. I, I wrote a whole program just for churches that we, you know, I call them ambassadors. I will send these PowerPoints to people that want to take it to their church and start presenting. Well, we'll put that yeah. in, the, in the show notes for everybody to access. If you send that to me on email, we can okay. put it in the show notes. And then everybody who listens to the podcast, if they want to get empowered to for their community and, and their church, they can access that. Yeah. Yeah. But those, I would just say, start there. Start with your own family and awesome. with your We tend to say that justice starts at home. And so if we're looking at justice and wanting to do justice, it's so easy to try and answer the culture's call for all of these culturally defined mechanisms and methods of justice. But justice truly starts at home and we serve a God who is just. And so he actually tells us how to do justice and what the justice issues really are. So I love that, that you're saying, hey, no, it starts right in your own home. Mm -hmm. A lot of dig deep into this. Begin looking in your own home and seeing what's there. Carrie, thank you so much for being with us. Please tell us how we can connect with you, how our viewers can stay in contact or follow or find out more information about your ministry. Yes, so definitely our website, freedomshieldfoundation.com. Be sure to just jump on there and then sign up for our newsletter. We do send out a newsletter every month that gives you the up-to-date 
uh, stories of what we're actively doing, um, how you can be praying and partnering with us. So we'd love to have you just sign up for that newsletter and um, and just, yeah, stay connected to us in that way. Thank you so much for you. taking the time to do this. I know it was hard for us to all kind of coordinate. I know you're very busy. Just thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you and your team are doing. Yes. And um, uh, maybe we can continue the conversation. I've got a couple more ideas for other shows we might want to do with with you and your team. So thank you so thank much. Thank you for shedding for truth. Yeah. Thank you, ladies. And thank you for just bringing awareness to such an important topic and for using your platform to educate uh, a lot of people. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. And that was so helpful. Like I just, I, I loved her, like heart for truth and yeah. scriptures and the church and the image bearer and yeah. yeah. I mean, you can just tell it's so natural, like just in her whole way of being, like just loving people in the Lord's love is just mm-hmm. completely natural for her. I loved her practical advice at the end about what regular people can do and just even a game plan on the porn issue and yeah. giving very practical steps. There's such value there. Um, I love that she didn't shy away from the reality that yeah. this is something that has hit her home. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and there's, there is no shame to be attributed in that. Like, like she was like, no, this, this, it's a real thing. Like it yeah. hits our homes. How do we bring this to the light and then yeah. actively combat it? So good. And I, I really hope that everyone's found the series helpful, educational, empowering, um, not just completely discouraging, but but hopeful. Yeah. Um, I know I've learned a lot in, in this whole journey. And um, I think that if we're going to be taken seriously on justice issues, we can't just always comment about past injustices. Mm-hmm. Hindsight is twenty twenty. It's very it's a lot easier to identify an injustice that's in the past. Mm-hmm. It's much more difficult to be proactive yeah. on a current injustice. And I think that the grassroots uh, people, the, all of these little mom and pop ministries, then they're all over the world. And um, I kind of compare it to the where we were with pregnancy resource centers like 10 or 20 years ago. This is a whole parallel grassroots movement that's happening in the anti-trafficking space. And it is important for Christians and churches to have an awareness and get behind it and to comment about it and we need pastors to be commenting about these things as part of their regular discipleship of their of their people. So, you know, one of the things that um just came to my mind right now was kind of doing like a recap and and listing out some of the things that we've learned yeah. over the last um you know three videos that we've done or three interviews that we've done, and I think part of it is that one these women. Um, it's largely women, but we don't want to exclude any of the males Absolutely. that are also participating yeah. in this or being trafficked. That many of the traffickers don't even, I mean, traffickers, many of those who are trafficked don't realize that they are victims of, of human trafficking. They don't realize that they're a victim at all, but might see themselves as participating for a greater good. Many of them struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, gosh, that those who are reaching out to help remove trafficked victims are putting their lives in danger. That's something that we need to be thinking about. And praying for and, those and, people. Yes, praying for those. I would say another thing is that, you know, many of these organizations are really working undercover. Many go without government funding. Many go just on the the donation and prayer of the individual person, just like you and me. They are trying to make a reality TV yeah. series about their rescues. That's not that's that part. That's not how it's done. Gosh, another thing that I would say that um, that I learned in all three of the conversations is that many of these victims have an upside down sleep cycle, and they need to relearn how to live in the world 
on a regular time schedule and they need to obtain regular life skills, things like budgeting and interviewing skills and how to do how do I sleep at night? How do I um, you know, do all of the things that just seem normal to so many of us? There's there's been a lot of I'm like searching my mind to remember because um Carrie Grace hit on a lot of them. But I was thinking about like our conversation with Derek and our conversation with Rhonda, you know, that that many of these victims also participate not just in prostitution, but there's other spheres of human trafficking that are human trafficking. Things like born um, strip clubs, clubs, prostitution and and other methods as well. And so I think for me. One of the things I would love to do a future show on is um, the issue of the male victims. I would like to explore that some more and learn more about that and how to advocate for for what they go through and their unique experience. Yeah. But also, I'm reminded at one little thing that Carrie Grace said, and then a little thing that we did in our conversation with Agape International Ministries back in 2020 is um, how do we minister to the traffickers? Mm-hmm. How do we, the gospel is for them too. Yes. We don't want to so villainize them to make it seem like they're unredeemable. And what do we do to evangelize the men who are addicted to poor? Mm-hmm. How do we bring faith, hope, restoration, and redemption to them? Yes. And um, Carrie Grace mentioned just very briefly, you know, some men, that she's equated with that put in fake ads. And then when the ads are responded to, they try to interact with that man to help them get off porn. I mean, this is this is a whole area of, of evangelism that we as Christians need to reflect on. We don't want to engage in dehumanizing the even the traffickers as as wicked as we think that their actions are we have to remember that jesus is making an offer of the gospel to them too and how are we going to participate in that i know it's a very hard thing to think about but i'm remembering our friends at aim one of the things they did in cambodia was opening a boxing gym Mm -hmm. where the men would come and then they could have a presentation and encounter with the gospel so um what you're saying reminds me of elizabeth elliott and i kind of see her as a prototype for Mm. not human trafficking but elizabeth and jim elliott were missionaries um down in south america in the jungles of south america and um her husband along with four other men back in the 50s 40s late in the 40s early 50s yeah. yeah i think 56 maybe um were killed by the Wadani tribe, which was this, you know, hugely very violent tribe. Yeah. And um, a couple of years later, she actually went back and she never, like for a long time, left the South American jungle. And the Lord actually gave an opening for her to go and live among the tribe that speared her husband to death. And so it's, it's, her prayer, as as I'm reading her book, um, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, her prayer was always for the tribe. It was always, you know, God, you know, these people did this, but they too need to hear the gospel. They too need redemption. They too need a relationship with Jesus, even in their brokenness and this broken place and the horrendous act that they committed against me and my child and my husband. They still need um, the gospel. And so that's what you're saying reminds me of that, of, you know, we can't be so enraged against the crime that's happened to the victim that we then turned a blind eye to the hurt, to the the trafficker that also needs salvation. And we also need to think about, you know, how do we shore up systems to for laws that provide and, and hand out just punishments for people that engage in trafficking. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, but we will not necessarily change hearts through those laws. It has to be a both yeah. and where the laws are protecting the vulnerable, punishing the guilty, and 
not creating an environment where we are ratcheting down the age of consent or using language where children can choose their own sex partners that we mm-hmm. see some of this language kind of creeping in the public square. No, we need to um, really shore up our efforts in the public square as well. So, Well, this has been a lovely conversation or not lovely. I think that's not the right word, but a very informative conversation. It's very helpful conversation. I really appreciated and learned a lot from, from this one. We hope that you have as well. We will be back with you next week in our season finale, which is a live show. It's a, our Ask Me Anything. So go ahead and go send, in your, send in your questions. Send in your question right here, ATT Livestream at gmail.com. And with that, have a great week. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.